0: Hello and welcome to the Rodeo Labs podcast. My name is Logan Jones Wilkins and I'm coming to you on a glorious Thursday in Richmond, Virginia from the Rodeo Labs East Coast Podcast Bureau. Today we're doing one for us. You know, it's a little bit of a one for them, one for us situation where we're looking externally, but we're also looking internally and we also want to focus on the people who work here at Rodeo. So, Joining us today, we have Ryan. Ryan is relatively new to rodeo. He joined the team about a year ago and came on as a bike builder, but quickly pivoted towards painting bikes with Cerakote. Cerakote is what we produce most of our bikes with and is an interesting yet fickle substance to paint bikes with. So today I thought I would get to know Ryan a little more get his voice on the podcast and talk about painting rodeo bikes that's just one part of the conversation to sort of explore more of what it means we have a special guest coming on for the second part of the episode who's well acquainted with the design philosophy of rodeo and has been around to see how that has changed i'm not going to tell you who the special guest is but you might be able to tell if you read through the lines anyways Here is Ryan in all his glory doing the first podcast of his life. the Rodeo Adventure Labs, and most specifically, our guy in the garage, our painter extraordinaire, our Piet Mondrian, it's Ryan. Ryan, welcome to the Rodeo Podcast. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. Is this your first time on the podcast? This is my first podcast ever. Your first podcast ever. Well, (laughs) why don't we start with something easy to break the ice? What do you do at Rodeo?
1: Well, um,
0: now I am the
1: lead Cerakote applicator, as I like to call myself. And ever since Jen left, I've been doing the shipping as well.
0: So you ship the stuff, you paint the stuff, and you also add some cultural elements. Um, I refer to you personally, internally, just to myself, as the cool kid, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of cool folks at Rodeo, but you have this youthful spirit and levity that I think you bring to every situation. And I think mm. this has something to do with your background as a skateboarder and as someone who's lived in Southern California. This is me spitballing, but mm. stop me or correct me if I'm wrong in saying that that is a little bit of the space you occupy in the office.
1: Mm. Well, thanks. Um, I mean, those things that you've said are true. I, I am a skateboarder and I
0: I grew up actually in Southern California. Now, you've not always been a painter, right?
1: Yeah, no, I have not. I, uh, I just got into it kind of randomly. I got hired on uh, here at Rodeo just about a year ago, maybe coming up on a year. Um, Stephen didn't really know what he wanted me to do. I interviewed for a position that I'm not doing but he knew he wanted me here so i was building bikes and um, kind of helping out where i could and then we got this Saracote booth up and running and drew and steven had already been Saracote certified which means they went to the place in oregon Saracote and took a class stayed there for about a week um so they kind of taught me the basics and you know we we were sending out our projects or custom bikes to someone here in town um chris over at flux who has been such a help for us and um but we had you know some stuff we wanted to do in-house so i kind of took the lead on that and i'm i do it now full-time
0: what were some things that you felt were scary about the painting process It feels for me as someone who is not artistically minded, like the most daunting part of that whole development aspect of a bike. I can do the other maintenance. I can deal with the shipping. I could deal with even working through some of the sales componentry of it. The part that I look at and I'm like, wow, this part of Rodeo seems way out of my league is really the paintwork. Did you feel like it was a daunting thing when you started or was this a something that felt inspiring?
1: Yeah, I think it was both. You know, I've always been kind of working with my hands um, in my in my past. So I've kind of had to learn how to do things somewhat not on the fly, but, you know, kind of adaptable. And it is, you know, it's it's the finish work. So people are getting these bikes that they really love and, you know, put a lot of time into and you want to make sure that it's 110% like all they want and more. And so I try to go about every single frame and complete, like any bike I I do finish work on, I try to have that uh, mindset because, you know, it's important to everyone who's getting a bike is you want, I want to make sure that it's perfect. And so at first that was a little scary just because I didn't really know exactly how Cerakote worked. And it's been a long learning process. There's been a lot of hiccups, you know, redoing and going over and figuring out what I did wrong and I feel pretty confident now in my ability.
0: From your work with Flex Customs and your understanding of the product, what are the elements of Cerakote that allow the bikes to look the way they do? Cuz Cerakote is not something that is used on on most bikes, but it's something that Rodeo has really adopted as the central system for custom paint.
1: Yeah, so Cerakote is a lot thinner than uh, traditional Uh, Liquid paint. It's very the colors we use, or the the finish series we use is very most of the time matte. There is like a gloss you can get, but most of the time the colors are very matte, very thin, and they kind of show. Like if you have something under the surface, you won't be able to fill it with cerakote You'll still see it after you spray it. So it's a lot different than paint in terms of like texture, feel, and and look. I don't know if that answers your question all the way.
0: Yeah, I think it does because. When I look at a rodeo bike, part of what's unique is the feeling that it has a different tint to it and it has a different texture alongside the geometry. And I think that has been something that has been cultivated with Cerakote and something that over the past year seems to have morphed into looking a little bit different. I think a lot of the custom jobs have come out and have had elements of a little bit of a different design philosophy there seems to be a little bit more of a whimsical feel to some of the painting. And Mm -hmm. I think that lines up a little bit with when you came in, Mm -hmm. was there artistic inspiration that you had that you think you brought with you to the painting process?
1: The normal, the normal process is, you know, Steven or drew will design the design with the customers of, you know, if it's a custom job, they'll be emailing or calling back and forth and figuring out exactly what they want. Um, And we've definitely like learned over the year kind of what Cerakote's, you know, coatings we like more like, or what goes well with other ones, experimenting with that and, you know, figuring out kind of how the the medium works. Some of my favorite projects have been kind of a little bit laissez-faire in terms of design and more kind of free reign. Like I get a abstract concept and then I have to fulfill it. And I think those have been pretty cool and pretty fun. We have always talked and joked,
0: well, I don't think we totally think it's a joke, but I think Steven thinks it's a joke about flames on a bike, <laughs> um, which I think personally would be my favorite design of all time because it's so sick. But mm. there have been other designs that have been realized. Um, and you mentioned your, your favorites. Uh, what are some of those favorite designs and what went into the process that made you feel like they were a little bit more meaningful?
1: One that comes to mind is uh there was a cloud bike that was really fun. So basically it was a it was a Trail Donkey 3.1 and it was like a custom mixed sky blue that we mixed uh, I think three or four different Cerakote colors to produce because they the they wanted a certain color. So we tried to match that as best we could and then there was white clouds all over the bike and it was yeah like very whimsical and fun and lighthearted and you know there wasn't like you have to place this cloud here it was kind of up to me that one was a lot of fun and there was also one recently a cow bike so it was a black and white bike and that was the same kind of thing where it was up to me to uh, make it look like a cow basically yeah it was a lot of fun because it was a lot of just time spent asking myself is this going to work does this does this look good? Which I I do on the other frames as well, but these ones had my own sort of end of the line input.
0: Are there sneaky things that stump you that you, if you were an outsider, you would think of like certain geometric designs or requests that a consumer might give you that might seem pretty straightforward, but in actuality on a three-dimensional frame are less straightforward?
1: Totally. One thing I am still trying to get, you know, nailed is vertical lines across frames and tubes. Because on a 2D drawing, you can, you know, draw a line across a frame straight and it looks in your head, you're like, oh, that's great. But then when you bring it out to the 3D world and you try to transfer a straight line across round tubes that, you know, go across multiple tubes, it can get Kind of hard to line it up and uh, make it look real good. So we have you know, tools that we've learned that help like laser levels and getting vinyl cutters to kind of help with that.
0: Do you feel that colors or certain shades work better with the mat? Do you have a favorite color in terms of the painting? I know you are a vibrant guy and you look at your bike and it's filled with different colors and you look at your wardrobe and it's filled with different colors. And you even look at your eyes, and they're two different colors. Um, so you're all about the colors. I want to know a little bit about what your preference uh, preferences are, and how that has been something that has changed the the look of the bikes going coming out.
1: You're right. I do like colors. In terms of seracote, my favorite colors might be sort of the metallic ones, like gold and copper and burnt bronze, things like that, because they have a they have a like shimmery texture to them, as well as just, I think the Cerakote lends itself to those colors really well. There are a lot, there's so many different Cerakote colors and we have so many, so it's kind of hard to pick favorites, but, you know, if I had to recommend to anyone, I would probably say those metallic kind of rare earth metal colors, you know, those are my favorite ones.
0: Yeah, it's sort of stepping back. And looking back at your life before rodeo, how did you get interested in bikes and how was what was your journey to working in the industry?
1: Hmm. Well, it was kind of out of necessity. Um I was living in Portland, Oregon, and great bike city, but um, you know, I had a I had a truck and growing up in Southern California I was just kind of accustomed to it. Um my buddy his brother gave me a like a eighty nine stump jumper. Uh, when I was coming back up to Portland one time, we were in San Francisco and he gave it to me. And so I had that and I would ride it around a little bit. But um, when my Ford Ranger got totaled in the middle of the night by someone that I, don't, I never met because I just woke up and my truck was totaled. That's when I started bike commuting. And so I was pretty much on bike for about four years until I got another car, four and a half, I think. I went to Bike Farm, the co-op up in Portland. And uh, they kind of taught me everything about bike maintenance. I found a similar, or the same frame, just my size. Um, so I switched out every single part and they helped me helped me do that. And I had pretty much no knowledge of bike maintenance before that. And then I got kind of more into it, you know, with fixed gear riding. And that was kind of my intro into actual riding for more than just um, commuting and getting around. It was more of a pleasure activity. And then Um, My friends showed me mountain biking, which is funny because I grew up in Thousand Oaks, which is like a mecca for mountain biking and never really (laughs) had a care for it. But yeah, I started working at a bike shop in Ventura about two years ago, two and a half years ago. And when my manager found out I was moving to Denver, he said, oh, you got to meet Adam, who's a good friend who works at Slow High. Bike and Coffee, which is right next door to us. And I interviewed there and they couldn't hire me. But um, my buddy Adam said, hey, I got um, this guy, Stephen. He needs help and he's really cool. He should." I, I sent him your info and you should in, uh,
0: email him. So that was kind of how I got here. And was that first conversation about building bikes and doing sort of mm, like the mechanical work and then the painting came on? Or what was that sort of conversation like with Stephen? Because I think... The rodeo hiring process and the like, how the company has grown, has been a really interesting thing, and it's something that we've touched a little bit upon, but not not in your case at least. So I'm wondering what that that conversation was like.
1: Yeah, so you know, I I was basically like, hey, I, I heard you need help. Um, I am a mechanic. I worked at a bike shop for just over a year, and I'm moving out. Um, and he needed. There was a guy who was working here who was doing customer service and relations and stuff like that. Um, and so that's kind of the position I interviewed for. Uh, and Stephen is very um, kind of aware of people. I don't know. It's He's very, he can like read people very well. And he knew that that wasn't a job for me, um, but he knew that he wanted me here. So, you know, he took a week to think about it. And I was like, oh man, I really hope, he hires me like staring at the website daily. Like, this is so cool. Like I, I had heard about rodeo before and um, it was kind of serendipitous, but I ended up coming on and my first day at work was um, helping Poncho um, plumb in the airline for the Serco booth actually. So that's kind of funny now that it's my main thing. And it was the first thing I did here.
0: So it was just sort of like a serendipitous entry when the painting became a position that wasn't even a position, but just some a, a task that could be part of your, your day to day. And then it just sort of suited you.
1: Yeah. It was, you know, like I said earlier, it was, it was started, it started out as we would need to, you know, get some single color frames out the door. Um, people really want their bikes and our painter is just backed up because he, he does our bikes, but uh, he also does bikes for open bikes for, you know, a bunch of other companies, um, and builders around here. So, and he's amazing. He does wet paint as well, uh, along with Cerakote. So we kind of built this booth just to, um, get things moving. And, uh, so it started out with just single colors and very simple designs. And as the time, <clears throat> as time went on, I started taking on more, you know, uh, ambitious and, uh, intricate designs.
0: What was it like going through that impromptu apprenticeship? Were you approaching the training from, I just need to paint these bikes one color? Or were you thinking, this is great, but this might be the start of doing more of this, and this is something that I think I could enjoy? I think
1: the very first like consensus around the office around here was, this is, you know, we just were building this to get things finished. People were upset about the wait times on, the Coat. So we we wanted to, you know, make sure that they were, they were happy. So there wasn't really um, in the beginning, sort of a, like, oh, this could lead somewhere. I mean, there was a little bit like, but in my head, I was like, well, I guess I could try it. And as time went on, you know, we, I started getting better and we started talking about it more. And, you know, we want to eventually do some, do some liquid painting. It's going to require a couple of things that aren't in the cards right now within the next a couple of months but it's definitely like evolved into more than just a kind of task to be done it's now a role and I wasn't really much of a painter before this I I did some a lot of art classes and stuff but the most of the painting I'd ever done was you know with a paint
0: pen somewhere on a street sign that was that was my extent That that was pretty much it are you excited about continuing to do this work? Do you feel like it's something that even though it it was not a part of your childhood or your schooling or anything like that, it's it's something that you continue to you you feel like you can continue to grow with and you can conti- you can continue to specialize in?
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. I I consider myself you know extremely lucky with and and I'm very grateful for the position I'm in because You know, I I basically, people ask me what I do, and I'm like, well, I get to decorate, you know, like these really nice bikes. They're kind of my, like, I get to put the finishing touch on them, and then they get shipped out to people who, you know, are super excited. A lot of people view the rodeo bikes as kind of their like end all be all bike. N plus one (laughs) is always a factor, but being able to, like, give people something super special um, in their own and unique and enjoy doing it. it. It's it's really special to me to have this opportunity and to potentially hopefully grow more and maybe learn some wet painting. Or like I was uh, we were talking about maybe doing, going to like a pinstriping, like hot rod auto shop paint class would, something like that, you know, or intern somewhere um, and learn how to do some really cool, more cool stuff.
0: Yeah. Do you think you have, the ability to do that because the process of what you're working on right now is getting quicker.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing. I can't speak firsthand for that kind of painting, but for coding it's it's very meticulous and it's very attention to detail. You know, I I spend my time so close to a frame, making sure that lines are straight and you know letters are are all straight and every, everything's you know perfect basically. Um, I don't think anyone is going to look at their bike as close as I did, which is something I have to remind myself um, from time to time (laughs) because, um, you know, most of the time you look at a bike, you're a little bit farther away or you're riding it and you're looking at the top tube, but you know, it's, it's just kind of the principle of making sure that it looks that I know it's perfect and um, that I did the best I could do. So that kind of like quality and trait I think carries over and, into whatever you, whatever you do really, but, um, especially with liquid paint and stuff, that's, it looks pretty intense.
0: I'm now joined with a special guest as you may have, have guessed. It's, uh, it's Stephen Fitzgerald. I'm back. I'm. Ba- I, you invited me back. I invited you back because there's a, there's a hole in my knowledge of you as a person. And it's, really everything that has to do with your professional career before you started Rodeo Labs. And from little drips and drabs I've gathered over the last couple years of working with you, I know it has something to do with design and it has something to do with color and aesthetics. But that's all. That's the most I know.
2: That's probably the the best summary.
0: From looking at Rodeo, it seems like you have not strayed away from graphics design and color what was your foundational knowledge of design, and, and how do you think that has leaked into the bikes you make?
2: Uh, well, I would, I would I, rodeo probably exists m- more because of design and color, maybe than anything else. In, in the beginning, when we were the team, just the team starting in 2014, rodeo. Was sort of launched with an instagram account and a wordpress site uh and then i immediately went to work designing and adding color to everything that i could possibly could uh, and then the trail donkey you know before it was our bike it was a generic bike that i put all the rodeo colors on and then all of that took off like a rocket ship so in a way rodeo would be nothing uh that it is currently without color involved and maybe that well it is that's what i bring to it i guess Uh, so I've been in design, um, my entire professional life before rodeo was that aside from a stint as a carpenter and a pre and a paper boy, but, uh, I, I apprenticed my way into my career. So I didn't go to college. I apprenticed my way into my design career just almost by squatting at a design agency in Portland, Oregon, and he, he invited me in for an interview, uh, my boss at the time. And and then when he interviewed me, he said, you know, absolutely nothing. You're fresh out of high school. I don't even know why we bothered with this interview. So I went home sad. And then he uh, he called me back and said, look, if you want to take manuals home and read them at night and then come back during the day, I'll teach you, you know, and then you can do some in- internship type work here. Um, and And that I did for a long time not a long time, maybe six months, let's say. And when it came time to go to school for it, for graphic design, uh, he just said, you know what, I'll hire you. It'll be minimum wage, but I'll give you a job here. So you can go to college or you can just apprentice your way into the industry. And to me, that was a pretty logical choice just to apprentice instead of, I didn't have any money for college. I didn't really know where I wanted to go. I just knew I needed to. So I chose that. and, And then that was really the entree into... Uh, my my entire career before rodeo. And it what's maybe important about that is it was all learning by doing, which is also all that the only reason I have permission to be here at rodeo or in the bike industry is because we've learned what we know by doing it. Uh, and that's the way I, I learned everything that I know. Um, so I've, I've loved design since then, since I was taught to love design by, by that guy. Gary uh, Gukeisen, um, who was my original boss, he taught me just to see things. I, I just didn't understand that, that graphic design uh, was, could be learned and, and appreciated. I was blind to it before that. I just knew I liked things that looked cool. So I took that uh, into, after, after working with him for a while, I went down to Los Angeles and worked in the television industry, still doing design. But I designed uh, television networks and, and commercials and things like that. If you see graphics flying around your TV screen, that was the kind of stuff I used to do. Um, and that was, that was really fun work. And you get exposed to a lot of really cool things. People, you know, the entertainment industry in and, and Los Angeles is really vibrant. And, and I think it thinks of itself as the entertainment capital of the world. I think, it's, I think that's a fair title. Uh, So you're surrounded by people who are the best in the world, you know, what they're doing in that industry. And it definitely helps you to up your game and try and keep up. I was never the best designer. I still don't think I'm the best designer, but I was a quick learner. And I really wanted to, to absorb as much as I could, uh, especially when I was young. Now I'm old and brittle. Um, So I did that for a long time. Then I, I transitioned a little to working on my own and freelance. And I Uh, I did more commercial work. So I would do concept development for TV campaigns for, uh, advertising campaigns for everything. And I got to do really cool work with really cool brands. And it was much more creative than, than the other work that I did because every job was just fresh. It was like how to make this car look cool or how to make this phone look cool. Or it just was very, very varied. So it kept you on your toes. And again, you had to keep learning, 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 um, And I think that's probably when I started learning how important story is and stories uh, and, you know, what are you telling people about about the widget and what's your tone? Uh, So that maybe took me from being more of a decorator into somebody who cared about what was being communicated, not just how it looked. Uh, And then the last leg of that journey was uh, I I spent a couple years doing concert tour stuff. So if you go to a tour and there's all that really fun stuff happening with the lights and up on the screens, I was designing a lot of that, uh, for, for again, really cool bands and groups. Um, and that dovetailed into starting rodeo. So right when I was sort of in the middle of that type of work, you know, I had quit my team in Denver and decided to start a new team and we just call it rodeo labs. And that's how we got where we are. Um, so I design has been a part of who I am really since the beginning of my adult life. Um, and, and yeah, obviously didn't stop with rodeo. I, I don't know how to not do it. So I think that that's why you see, if you see that in rodeo, then that's why it's there is because it's definitely part of that self-expression.
0: It, it kind of seems like the way you describe it, you sort of took the backdoor entrance into design and then you took the backdoor entrance into storytelling. And then you took the backdoor entrance into marketing. And then you took the backdoor entrance into cycling and what it means to be a part of the cycling industry.
2: That's a really funny observation. <laughs> I like that a lot, though. You just yeah.
0: ser- like, serendipitously subverted the pathways and the conventions that those fields typically take. And as someone who's going very much through the the conventional routes, well, I guess I don't know how anyone can be conventional and affiliated with rodeo. I think we're like inherently unconventional, but it's still for me as a journalism student, I went to a liberal arts institution and did all of that. So to look at your story and to think about the way you sort of subverted those norms gives your story a little bit of like a creativity to the way you might approach an opportunity how has all of that informed the way you look at challenges now, like you looked at the challenge of being employed in a industry that you might like out of high school?
2: Uh, well, so every company that I ever worked at I, before I went out on my own was always very small, never more than you know maybe 10 people and sometimes just three or four. So you always had to wear a lot of hats and you had to, again, learn fast. And I feel like that, that tool set, lent itself really well to starting rodeo, uh, just the, if you don't know how to do it, figure it out, uh, as, as quickly and as well as you can and, and keep moving it is, is baked into definitely what we're doing here. Um, so that, that laid that foundation. Um, and it's funny, you know, I know you just spoke with Ryan when Ryan first interviewed here, uh, he, you know, he came and I said, I don't have, we're not hiring but you come sort of recommended from someone I like. So if you just want to talk and we talked and I said, wow, Ryan's a cool guy. Uh, I don't really have a job for him right away, but he's a cool guy. And then things picked up and I said, Hey Ryan, I don't really know uh, if this is the type of work you want to be doing, but here, here are some things that we need help with. And he, he, Ryan's so chill, right? He's just like, yeah, cool. I'm in. Um, And then as we built our own capabilities and came into that, the the place of, of doing paint, he did the same thing he basically took the back door in and he said i'm willing to do that i'm willing to learn that i'm gonna learn you know as quickly as i can and and i care enough to be excellent at it and and all of a sudden he's he's an absolute expert at it now like he's just such a ninja and i think i like that i like that because uh, that's how i got to wherever I am and, and to see other people able to follow that path of just like being willing to do something and then, and then working at hard enough to become excellent at it is it's cool to know that that's an available path. It isn't the only path. Tell my kids, go to college if that's what your career demands. Um, and if your career doesn't demand it, be open-minded about any other way that you can get to that career because that's how I did. So there are many paths. I like your path, Logan.
0: I mean, I like my path too. I can't say I have too many complaints, but it is important for me, I think, as someone who is going through a conventional path and who's sort of gripping with the anxieties of the external world or the postgraduate world to look at people like you and people like Ryan. I mean, the parallels don't end there. Ryan grew up in Southern California, moved to Portland. Portland was where he got involved in bikes. Obviously the listener, you guys, you guys know this. You just were told the story and I'm sure Steven, you've heard the story too but it seems like there was parallels in those experiences and it's interesting that you guys are able to work as a team now in the design aspect of of the bikes and the colors and the the vibrancy that seems to be the calling card of rodeo um how has it been working with someone else in-house as basically a full-time painter Is that an an experience that has allowed you to think a little more creatively with the designs? Obviously, Flex Customs was a really good partner and still is a partner for Rodeo, but it's it's a little different to have it in-house.
2: I think, yeah, it is fun in-house. You know, when we work with Flex, who is just, in all honesty, the best painter we've ever worked with, he's just an absolute genius. Um, But you do have to backstop that on how ambitious you are in terms of cost, there aren't there aren't as many people who can afford that level of i mean just technical excellence or the creative excellence or just the number of man hours it takes to do some of the things that that we ask him to do but when you're working in house you know you don't get an invoice for internally for the things that you do so sometimes you can be a little bit more creative with a with a design almost because you can't see the price tag. And, and I think that's healthy. Obviously you need to run a business that doesn't get upside down, but in another way, not being so driven or walled in in your creativity by what if we make this too much? Uh, or what if, what if we lose $200 on that paint job? Um, sometimes that's totally worth doing because the end bike is so spectacular Uh, and it, it, you know, and it even earns its, it, it earns its merit in other ways. Like so many people, it brings people so much joy that it's worth what we spent to get it done. So having Ryan and Poncho, who I'm sure you'll talk with at some point, uh, is also in the paint department, uh, and does a tremendous amount of work there. They both kind of collaborate extremely closely. Um, but having them in house makes the entire process more collaborative. And, and when we try and do something too ambitious, or we're, we're not precise with what it is that we're trying to have done. They're really good at coming back and challenging us to be clear about what we're doing or to bring up, you know, better ways to do it. So I would just say on the whole, it makes the entire experience more collaborative for everybody here.
0: Has the designs themselves changed at all? Has Ryan brought different energies and intention into it? We talked a little bit about the cloud bike, the cow bike, but do you think that you're seeing the bikes that go out um, change in nature a little bit?
2: I think a couple of things have changed how we do, how we do the bikes. I mean, working in Cerakote instead of liquid paint is a totally different uh, process, and it has its own types of limitations. So we design within those constraints. Uh, you, don't, you don't pile up as many layers like you do with paint. You don't have a glossy, clear over the top that levels everything out like you do with paint so you tend to color block differently and and be more thoughtful about you know where the graphics are our our bikes are always looking different over time because one really cool thing about doing custom is that anything that you do and prove that you can do becomes a calling card for more people to ask more from you so if you make a cool bike someone else will come along and ask you to make a cooler bike because you built a cool bike. Same applies to paint. You do something really unique with paint. Somebody else will come along and throw down a bigger gauntlet or something more creative and personal and then ask you to interpret that. So I don't, I don't really fear getting stagnant um, or, or you know, that we've stopped evolving just because customers will never stop uh, evolving in what they ask for. They're always going to be a fresh well of inspiration. Sometimes I think on bikes that I designed in a vacuum for myself, sometimes I feel a little stuck on how I'll block something out. Uh, and I really try and um, upset myself when I know that I feel like that rut is happening. It does happen, but
0: yeah. We've um, obviously talked mostly about bikes, but the design at Rodeo has extended to clothes for Many years, but the clothes don't seem to quite capture the same attention. I think there's there's more clothing brands out there, Um, but I really like the clothes. How is it to balance those two things? Are you feeling like there's room to grow in the clothing design department? Um, It's got to be a little bit of a different challenge and something that might feel like work that you can do as a side project. But am I right in saying that it it is hard to? view it as something central just because of the legacy of the bikes themselves?
2: Clothes are interesting. They, they do not exist to be a huge profit center for rodeo. You know, I think about how many jerseys we would have to sell to equal a bike selling. and, And you would think, well, this isn't even worth the time. I should just concentrate on selling more bikes. If I really, if that's what we're driven by, which arguably is not. Uh, so, but clothes Clothes came out of the frustration of having to work within the the guidelines and the, the blocks that the major manufacturers were sending us. I guess in the same way that the trail donkey happened because I, I just wanted to ride you know, the bike that I wanted to ride. I wanted it to exist and I didn't see it on the shelf. The, the rodeo clothing happened because we had our own ideas. I had my own. Drew had his own. Other people around here have their own ideas about what they want their garment to be like. And then you would ask you know, some of the big custom suppliers that we worked with, can we change this? Can we change this? And the answer was always just no. You're allowed to put your colors on this thing and, and then we'll print it and send it to you. And after, I don't know, six years of that, I just finally said, I can't do that anymore. Uh, there's nothing left in that well. For a while, it was creative working that way and just kind of using their lines and making it a coloring book. But at the end, it, that ran out of steam and I said, the only way to keep going with clothing is to make our own, where we get to control everything. And it, it was a question of, okay, can we create, you know, a good bib short uh, that that we want to write? Can we create a good jersey that we were? How about a baggy jersey? Um, you know, the wool jersey, things like that, where we had our own idea. In it. And if that wasn't in someone else's catalog the way we wanted it, it either, you know, we either have to do it ourselves or it wouldn't exist. So they've. The clothes have been very fun as a creative outlet, very challenging, because everyone has a strong opinion about clothing. Uh, But I think we did it. And I think we got to a good point where the core items that we offer, we're we're executing them really well. But I am a little bit at a pause with our clothing. Not that we won't do any this year, we will. But just, I'm starting to ask, what contributions are we really making? Um, Like what's the why? Now, again, uh, especially, you know, do you want everyone to buy two or three jerseys from you every year? And I think the answer to that is probably no. You actually don't want that. You just don't want to fast fashion your way through the bike industry. So right when we started making clothing, I kind of had this explosion. We offered like six or seven jerseys. And now I'm slowing that way down uh, to we shouldn't put a jersey out unless it has a purpose. So we you can see, like, the lamouflage or the lamb jerseys or the woolies generally have a really strong theme. They're really fun. They come at the right time of year where it's getting cold, and there aren't a lot of really nice wool jerseys on the market. So, those get to exist. But I'm not going to put 10 sort of generally fun, colorful jerseys out for spring and just hope that people snap them up for no reason. That would be a very bad motivation. So, internally, I'm thinking about what contribution could we make to jerseys before we just go and hit print again so i haven't hit that and as such there aren't any being made at the moment but that's okay because clothing isn't the economic driver at rodeo it's something that we can do when we feel like there's it's worth doing so it'll be interesting to see when inspiration hits
0: yeah i mean i've been Fortunate enough to be a part of that design process for my personal project last year. And we, I mean, that was zero percent geared towards selling jerseys. It was really let's try to express something and express a feeling. And it was fun, but I definitely got me thinking about what is the purpose of designing something and wearing something and being a, an ambassador or a sponsored writer or or anything in that. I know we've had some conversations about projects and you've launched the slow gravel sub brand, which I think was really cool. And I've seen slow gravel jerseys all over the place. So it's clear to me that there's room and there's a template. Um, the the jerseys are really comfortable and the the bib shorts work well. It's just, I think, are the designs clicking and, and I think they have to mean something. And I think that hearing you talk about that has underscored that.
2: I think you see that like when we did the volet straps, we started, you know, Sheldon back in the day made contact with them, and they said, yep, we can print, you know, custom straps. And then I sort of was surfing around online and noticed that everybody had a custom volet strap with their logo on it, you know, and they all looked good. And I thought, why would we do a volet strap at there? There are too many to choose from. And just being me too is not a really good motivation and then we were joking and it was drew and i and who else upstairs and we just decided to make it say hold my beer instead of um instead of rodeo labs it you know the volley strap just said hold my beer which is a funny saying you know I hear all the time and and we thought well that made us laugh uh so let's just make a hold my beer strap and we sold so many of those because there was a really fun idea behind it and people saw it and they laughed and honestly if people got a rodeo labs valet strap who would even smile or laugh at that so you know that got to exist because it made people laugh and then it was the second version of it was well i'm a straight edge i don't drink beer can you make a strap for people who don't like alcohol and we thought yeah of course so then you know we made the hold my pample moose Version, which is absurd. What a stupid thing to put on a strap! But it was funny because of the "Hold My Beer" strap. And then, those might have even been more popular than the "Hold My Beer" strap. Uh, and and I, I like to think that if we're going to make something, it should make people smile. It's a it it should kind of pull its own weight. Uh, it has to be functional, but it also needs like that that weird factor of like, but what else? But why else should we do it? So. Look for that. We don't always nail that. We don't always nail that, but we have killed projects. You know, we've killed, um, we had like a, co- a coffee mug thing back in the day, just a kind of a Yeti mug. Uh, and then I went home and, uh, I looked at my mug drawer and thought I own about 72 mugs. Not really, but a lot. As a matter of fact, we have two drawers in our kitchen full of mugs. And you think is putting rodeo labs on a mug just because we can the right thing to do or, or is there a real reason to make a mug um, and would it make people smile if we did? So we we killed that project. You might actually see a mug this year, actually. We found a really great reason to do a mug. I'm not going to elaborate, but uh, look for it in the spring. Stay tuned. But it's been like four years. Yeah. Stay tuned for the mug. Stay yeah, tuned for the mug. Droppings try, sometime. Try and sleep with all that anticipation.
0: <laughs> all right. To yeah. wrap this up, I, I've been really thinking about all of what we have at our disposal in terms of designs that have come up over the last couple of years. It seems like design is really taking a step forward. What are you seeing in the world today that is really inspiring you to think differently about design outside of rodeo, outside of the bike world? What is a design thing that has really caught your eye and is drawn you in to think differently about what you're doing?
2: Ah, well, it's funny that you use the term think differently. Uh, Something that has me thinking a lot right now, having just finished the uh, Steve Jobs biography, which took me a very long time to get through because I had it on Audible. It's like 20 hours. Uh, But I I really, I think, pulled a lot of uh, takeaways from that book. And one was the willfulness that he had to, um, to bring focused products into being Uh, so every, nobody competes with Apple in terms of how focused their products are that I can think of off the top of my head. There probably are some others, but not a lot. Um, It's not like they're a perfect company and he wasn't a perfect human being, but, but the confidence in the determination that they had to bring a focused product to market has has changed how i think about what we're doing here and i think it's making me ask more well why why are we doing that or is it really good and even if it's really far along um is it as good as it needs to be and i think you you've heard that tone from from me logan because we talk about the podcast a lot and i'm i'm trying to maybe pass that along to you to say all right you we laid down a good recording you laid down a good recording now stop and ask yourself is it as good as you want it to be is it really done or are you just trying to rush it to the finish line i so i've said that to you and i'm saying it to myself internally and 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 it's a i'm trying to weave that more into our dna about how we design things Um, we've done some iterations on td4 behind the scenes that you won't really see until the bike hits um, but just where we've gone back and revisited, you know, what was essentially a complete design. And we're going back and saying, actually, you know, I don't think it's as complete as it could have been. It was just good enough to, to be passable, but, but is it great? Um, and, and can, will we take the hard way to get there in terms of being as good as it needs to be? So that, that's been a big change for me. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, it's a whole other thing, but we are working on, you know, this initiative to make a bike here uh, in Denver and to be, make bikes for customers in Denver long-term. And we're building that into the that project from the ground floor uh, to push really hard on all of these ideas and to to ask why and to question the constraints that other people have already put on, on bikes and say, is that constraint there? Because it has to be or can we can we push on that constraint, and it's actually not a solid object? So we just can can blow right through it. So I, that's not a design. It's not a design language. It's just a design philosophy that I think is is becoming more ingrained here.
0: As Stephen mentioned, we've had a lot of different projects going on at the podcast. A couple of things started. A couple of things have stopped. A couple of things are being reimagined. But thank you for listening to the first three episodes of my attempt to bring a little regularity to the show. Uh, We've got some really exciting stuff coming down. We've been talking this week about a a longer and larger project of a little bit bigger scope that I think I'm really excited about. Uh, Steven, you've talked about um, your excitement. You're going to be included on a part of it, but it will be a lot of me exploring some journalistic storytelling. I've been thinking about quite a bit. And then we're going to be taking a road trip soon.
2: Cool. Oh, wait. Yeah. Oh, Mid-South is coming. We're going to have to finally do what we attempted to do uh, at at Rule of Three, which is to record an episode before and directly after the race. I think we finally are going to pull it off. What do you think?
0: I think so, too. We might even have a special uh, guest host who can moderate, who can give his own perspective into the race and help us to sort of sort through our feelings in a orderly manner. It's going to be really fun. Hopefully you guys have heard the field reporting I did with uh, Bobby last summer, and it's going to be great to revisit that race, especially with you, Stephen, and the house party that will ensue. I'm looking forward to it. How's was, how was your training been?
2: I assume... So I, I had to wait to decide if I was going to Croatan or Mid-South based on family spring break. And when I finally got the dates, uh, from my kids and wife about, you know, when I was allowed to, to ride my bike, it it became clear that Mid-South was the weekend that I could do. And as soon as I, as soon as I signed up for that, I got so excited to have a goal again. Uh, it's not like I'm going to race that race to win it, but just, just to want to be able to ride those hundred miles and have fun, uh, was so exciting that. My bike riding just went like vertical <laughs> and I'm, I'm taking my training is basically doing from work. So I'm, I'm taking the long way to work and the long way home, basically more or less every day now, uh, and having a ton of fun doing it. Whereas in January, I was a little lost in the cold, in the lack of, of a goal. So I would say I'm way invigorating. How about you?
0: Oh, it's been great. Um, January was a little up and down weather here in Virginia was, was wet which is worse than cold because there's no snow. It's just those 40 degree and rainy days and days were short and life was, was bouncing all over the place. But I've hit a groove the last couple of weeks and I got some unfinished business there with a crash last year. So I'm really excited. I mean, that race is, is a special event and it's one where I think that I could do pretty well. I don't know that the fields are always changing. They always get faster, but. I don't know if I'll be I'll be faster or not yet, but I'm trending in the right direction. So let's hope for I, I, yeah. good luck.
2: I maintain my theory that you're converging on everything clicking in a race rapidly. And when it does, I want to be there to see it because uh, it's super fun.
0: I'm trying my best to make it in March. Anyways, thanks, Stephen, for your time. Thank you, Ryan, for joining us earlier. Uh, thank you, listener, for taking the time to... Learn a little bit about design, a little bit about color, and a lot about Stephen finding backdoors into different places. Rodeo,
2: Rodeo, Rodeo Labs podcast is filmed in front of a eat